Alright, so Colossians chapter 1, we're in verses 21 through 23 today. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you for allowing us to come to your word now. God, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things here. God, I pray that you would not allow us, Lord, to be cold and numb towards glorious truths that are found in your word. God, where we need to be encouraged as a church, God, encourage our souls. God, where we need to be rebuked and corrected, God, rebuke us, correct us, Lord. Lord, we come to you with this heart. Whatever you command us, we do. Wherever you send us, we go. God, we want to come with a heart to turn at your rebuke, Lord, and trust you that you would make your words known to us, God, and pour out your spirit on us. God, help us now, please, as we open your word. Uh, let us see. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me give kind of an overview of where we're going, or where we have come from, I mean. So we're in the book of Colossians here, right? So written by Paul the Apostle, uh, written by him from chains uh, in prison. He's in imprisonment. He's writing to the church at Colossus. So he's writing to this church. He's writing to encourage them. He's writing to warn them. And we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, we see a greeting that Paul gives the church here to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Verses 3 through 8, we see him uh, showing thankfulness. He is thankful for this church and the way God has used this church and what God has done in this church. In verses 9 through 14, we see his prayer for them as, as Paul Tells them, this is what I pray for you. This is the way I cry out to God and intercede on your behalf. So we see his prayer for this church. And in verses about 12 through 20, we see this massive, amazing exaltation of Jesus. Okay, and this is where we've been sitting for a while, right? That we see Jesus high and lifted up in those verses. Maybe one of the most, uh, probably the most concentrated, uh, thickest places in the Bible where you just get Christ in his glory. This is who he is. This is what he's like. And so you've got Jesus who has delivered us from the domain of darkness, brought us to, into the kingdom of his beloved son, who's given us redemption, forgiveness of sins. He's the image of God. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, all things created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. He's the head of the church. All, in all things, he is preeminent. He is God in the flesh. This is Jesus has given to us in this paragraph of scripture that's so thick. And then we turn the corner today and we make it to verse 21. And so I want you to think about this transition from Christ Jesus high and lifted up in verses 12 through 20. And then in verse 21, we see this verse 21 and you and you. And so we get this transfer from the glorious Christ to sinful us. And I'll be honest, if, you're, if I was sitting there just reading that slowly, and I'm reading about Christ, image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, this is Him. And then, I, and then I'm reading slowly, it says, and you. I'm expecting something bad to come. I'm expecting and, and you. And you, something ain't right with you. Look who, look who Christ is, and look at you, sinful humanity, look at you. And yet what you get here in verses 21 to 23 is one long sentence. And you know what the main verb that's found there is? Reconcile. Reconcile. So here we are. We've got glorious Christ and we turn to the, the corner to and you. And you, church of Colossus, and you. Reconcile. Let's read it. I want you to read it from this angle. Imagine being in the church at Colossus there, being a Colossian saint. And it turns the corner and this is what you hear from the Spirit of God through Paul. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Can you imagine that? Glorious Christ, he turns the corner and he looks at us. I want this to land on us. Think about this towards us. Not just a church of class, but Grace Community Church. Listen, you and you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, haters of God, evil deeds is what you have done. He has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh by his death. He has reconciled you to present you to God. Holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not moved away, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which has been proclaimed among all creation and which Paul is the apostle. So we got glorious truths given to us about Jesus in verses 12 through 20. And this is the application in you and us in the church of Jesus Christ. So let me give you kind of an outline of the way you can break down verses 21 through 23. And we'll be here the next couple of Sundays. So if there's something in here you say, man, I wish you to hit. Maybe I'll get it next Sunday. Okay. So verses 21 through 23. I got four headings here to break down, to break this down as an outline. Verse 21 is the depravity of men. The depravity of man is what we see in verse 21. Verse 22, we see the reconciliation of man. And you can just kind of glance down at it there. Verse 23, the first part of verse 23, let me read the part of verse 23 I'm talking about. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Stop there. That part of verse 23 are the conditions of reconciliation. So you got the depravity of man, Reconciliation of man and the conditions for man's reconciliation. And then the last part of verse 23, we see, you know, which gospel, which gospel, Paul, which gospel reconciles. And he says this at the end of verse 23, the gospel that you heard, number one, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, number two, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, number three. So let's start with the depravity of man. So verse 21, I'm going to read this again. Look at it, the depravity of man. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now this is the first mention of, of the, sinful, the sinful nature of man in this, in this letter. Okay. Now we know before that in this letter we were told that, that we come from the domain of darkness. That we were in the domain of darkness. But as far as the nature of man and his sin, this is the first piece we get of that in this letter. That we, are, we were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. So I want you to think about this. How could Paul say this to every single member of the church at Colossus? How could he say this to every single member of the Colossian church? Can you imagine this? Like, you know, how many people are in that church there at Colossus? Was it 70, 100, 1,000? We don't know. But how could he apply those three terms? Alienated, haters of God who have done evil deeds. How could he apply that to every single one of them? Could you see, could you see, a, I just imagine a member of the church at Colossus writing Paul a letter back and saying, hey, you know, Paul, when you began that letter you wrote to us, it sounded like it was to all of us, Okay. You said the faithful ones, the saints at Colossus. It sounded like it was to all of us. But then you began to say some things like, we're all alienated and we're all haters of God. Well, listen, I know there's some bad folks here that have been haters of God. But you know, not all of us have hated God. And you said that, that we were evildoers. And there's some pretty, you know, evil doing that's happened with people in this church. But not all of us. There's some moral people in this church, Paul. Why did you write it like that? And so you see my question? How can Paul say to every member of the Colossian church, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds? How can you say that? Because it's true. Because it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. We have such low views of sin. We have such low views in humanity. And, and we tend to have low views of the sinfulness of sin. And we have high views of man that it's hard for us to swallow sometimes. But each one of us could be tagged as alienated haters of God doing evil deeds. Every single one of us. And I would bet that there's somebody here even now under the hearing of my voice that you would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't feel like that's true about me. I never hated God. 
I was never, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not perfect, but I never did evil things. I'm not an evil doer. I'm not a hater of God alienated from Him. I bet there's somebody under the sound of my voice right now that's thinking about that. And I'm telling you, that is your pride and that's the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 says that phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. It will deceive you and you'll be so prideful you can never think of yourself that way. Just another sin added on. We don't grasp the sinfulness of sin, the putridness of sin. We don't grasp the depth. None of us grasp the depth of our depravity. I heard one preacher say it like this. He said, we understand the putridness of our sin like a fish understands he's in water. Or like a fish understands he's wet. Excuse me. That's how we understand. We're so consumed by it that we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. So this is the three descriptions that are given here. Three descriptions of man's depravity. Look at verse 21. Alienated, number one. Hostile in mind, number two. Doing evil deeds, number three. So let's talk about those three descriptions of our sinfulness. Alienated. This word alienated means to be shut out from one's fellowship. It's to be shut out from one's intimacy. Imagine that. Shut out from the fellowship of God. You are unwelcome to God. You are unwelcome in His kingdom and unwelcome among His people. This is to be alienated from God. Let me read you a verse, Ephesians 4, 18. Ephesians 4.18 says it like this. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated. There's our word. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart is what Ephesians 4.18 says. So to be alienated is to be banished from God. Is to be cut off from His presence like Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against God, and they're cut out from the Garden of Eden. To be banished from God. Poor foreigners. That's what we are. Poor foreigners without hope, without a future, no hope, no future because of our sin. Isaiah 59 two says it like this. It says, Your sin has separated you from your God. Your iniquity has hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Separated, alienated from God. Isaiah 64.6 says, We all fade as a leaf and our iniquity like the wind has taken us away. You've seen that a lot in this season, right? Brown, faded leaves on the ground. Dying and dead, separated from that source of life in the tree, separated from God, alienated from God, dead in our sins. So that's alienated. Second description hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. Here's what happens here. Maybe you picture, okay, I was alienated from God, or we're a people alienated from God. But man, we just desperately to get, we desperately desire to get back in. Oh, I wish I had fellowship back with God. I wish I could have gotten back to Him. But, but I'm alienated from Him. Maybe that's the way you picture our state. And if it is, you're wrong. That's not our state before God. Our state before God is that not only are we alienated, but we are hostile in mind. Hostile means hatred of God. We hate Him. He is our enemy. He's an enemy in our sight. We are gladly alienated from God because we can't stand Him. That's our condition. Not desiring to get back in. Not desiring to have fellowship with God again. But our, our original condition is that we are haters of God. Those are our desires. Next phrase says, Doing evil deeds. Doing evil deeds. So here, we're alienated. Think about it. Alienated. Haters of God. But surely, surely, right? Surely we never act on that hatred. I mean, He is the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe that does all that He pleases. Surely as we sit to the side, alienated from Him and haters of God, enemies of God, surely we wouldn't act on that, right? And yet this verse says, Doing evil deeds. On our record, all the sins go up before God. Because not only do we hate Him, but we act on that hatred. We act out in ignorance and stupidity against this God. And we've done it again and again and again. If our record 
If our record of evil deeds that we've actually done, if it was placed before the world, we would melt in shame and fear. And you imagine that record of evil deeds going before God. Just one of our records, just one of our records coming before God with its evil deeds would make God want to puke. And that's us before God. So here's our condition. Not only banished from God, but haters of God. Hostile in mind. The word hostile is hatred, is enemy. So not only banished from God, but haters of God. And not only haters of God, but doers of evil against Him. I want you to think about this. If by some miracle, we could bridge the gap of our separation from God. Just by some miracle, somehow that, that we could, you know, we've been banished from his presence. If by some miracle we could actually bridge that gap of, of alienation from God. Guess what? We would still come before him with hostile hearts and we'd go to hell forever. This is the reason we need regeneration. That our hearts be changed. We'd be made new. And then, let me take it a step further. If somehow by a miracle you were able to bridge that gap of separation from God, no longer banished. And somehow you could change your heart to you no longer hate God, but oh, you love Him. Your heart has been changed. You have a new heart. If there's some way that you could do that, you would still come before Him with all those sins on your record. Those evil deeds that you have done and you'd go to hell. It's the reason we need the justification of God. Where the judge of all the earth wipes the record clean. But this is our condition before God. So I want, you, I want to ask you this. Let's start thinking about this. Do you see the sinfulness of sin? Do you see the depths of even your own depravity? Do you see the depths of man's depravity, the sinfulness, the putridness of sin? I want to point you to a place that I think will be helpful. If you go to Romans chapter 3. You know, Romans chapter, Romans chapters 1 through 3 are probably the best place for you to go if you want to know about the sinfulness of man. Go to Romans chapter 1. Through three, he digs in about the, the sinfulness of man's sin. And when you get to chapter three, verse nine is really a summary statement of all that has gone before. Chapter three, verse nine is a summary statement. Look at it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, here it is, we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All under sin. That's the, that's the summary of Romans 1 through 3. And after he gives that summary, he says, all under sin. That's where we're at. That's our condition. He breaks into an Old Testament passage and uses it to explain. This is what I mean. You're not a little sinner. You're a massive sinner before God. Look at verses 10 and on. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That means your record is tainted with evil. No one understands. That means your mind is defiled by wickedness. No one seeks for God. That means your, your, even your ambitions are marred by sin. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one is good. No, not even one. The Bible just called you a no good, worthless traitor. That's what it just said. Verse 13 and on says your mouth is defiled by evil. You can keep going and on. Your actions are wicked. In the last verse, verse 18, maybe the worst of all. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Worst of all, you belittle God. This is your sinfulness. You belittle God so much so that the next couple verses, verse 19 and 20, tell you that there is absolutely nothing you can do to make up for this. The reason why you can't walk in works righteousness where you're okay to go to heaven because of your good works and your effort is because you're so sinful it won't work. We're too defiled. Our condition is too deep in depravity and sin for our works to get us out of it. It will not work. I want you to think about this. The world. What about the world? Does the world think about sin like that? I see some heads. No. The world does not think about sin like that. The world thinks much too lightly of sin. This is the reason the, 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 the first step in, uh, in salvation. The first thing that happen, has to happen for someone to be saved is what has to happen. 
The Holy Spirit moves upon them and brings about conviction. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The world doesn't think, about, doesn't think this way about sin. But God wants His church. Hear me out. God wants His church to see the seriousness of sin. To see the sinfulness of sin. God wants His church to understand and grow in its knowledge, its felt reality of the destructiveness of sin. God wants that from His church. I know that for several reasons. One is what we just read in Romans 1-3. through You've got this Holy Spirit inspired gospel letter getting laid out. And what's the first thing that he does? He spends three chapters on the sinfulness of man. God wants you to understand it. He wants you to get it. He wants you to feel it in your bones. Colossians chapter 1, where we're at in verse 21, right? When he, when he goes to turn the corner and he addresses, and you. The first thing he says is not forgiven. He says, and you were once alienated, haters of God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's the first thing that he wants you to know. The more that you know that, the, the, the star of the gospel shines in the blackest night. The more you understand the sinfulness, the more you understand the gospel, you get the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you another verse that says, that helps me know that God wants us as a church to know the sinfulness of sin. Look at chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 5 and 6. Now I want you to think about something. We just sang a song that said, No wrath. No wrath left for us to face. No wrath left. No wrath left. And yet, and that's true. And yet you read this, look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Do you see what's happening there? He wants us to see. God wants His church to understand the seriousness of sin. Listen, put to death, murder the sin that is in you. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming because of these things. He wants you to feel the weight of the seriousness of sin. And the reality is, is that even a regenerate church, even a regenerate church, the church of Jesus Christ, can have low and soft views of sin. And that's what I want us to th think about for just a minute. Did you know that we can have low and soft views of sin? You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you got this situation where sin is coming to the church and they need to excommunicate someone that is in the church. Paul's writing to them to excommunicate, to discipline out somebody that's in the church. But in the, in, the, in the path of doing that, he rebukes the Corinthian church. Anybody know why he rebukes the Corinthian church? He rebukes them because they have yet to put this man out. He, he, he rebukes them not just because they lack forgiveness and they lack patience. He rebukes them because they had not, they were not, this man's walking in this sin and they had not excommunicated this man. And the reason they had not excommunicated this man, you know what the reason was? He says, don't you know the little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, don't you know the seriousness of sin? Don't you get the seriousness of sin? So he writes this letter about this man. He says, I'll put this man out that he, that, he might, that he might be saved in the day of Christ. In other words, if you saw the seriousness of sin, you would, you would want to do whatever it took to get that man out of its grip. If you saw the seriousness of sin, you would know how it affects the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't you see how serious this is? And he rebukes them. He says, you're boasting and you're prideful. But, and it's in your, your so-called tolerance. It's in your so-called forgiveness. See, these people took sin way too lightly. And that's in the church of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 5. I want you to think about this. Listen to this, this quote from J.C. Ryle. Listen to this quote. Dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. Let me say that again. Dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. And I agree with that. I think false, excuse me, soft views of sin, it makes for unbiblical evangelism that leads people to hell. Soft views of sin leads to personal fights against sin that are weak or non-existent. Soft views of sin lead towards 
corporate battle against sin. Where we, where we in the lives of one another, we're fighting sin together and rebuke and correction, receiving rebuke and correction and giving it as happening. That's weak whenever, whenever you have a low or soft view of sin. When you have a soft view of sin, false Christ get accepted everywhere. I was thinking about this this week. You let somebody have a biblical view of sin. I mean, they get it in their bones. They, they, it, it hits them. You can, you can guarantee that little Jehovah's Witness Christ, and that little Mormon Christ, and that little nominal Christianity Christ that gets put up before the world, no one that understands the depth of sin would accept that Christ. None. Only the real Savior can save out of the depth of depravity that we're in. So let me ask you this. Do you understand? Apply this to yourself. Do you understand the power of sin? Do you get the power and the destructiveness of sin? Let me give you a few things that would make you think through the power and the destructiveness of sin. Number one is this. Multitudes. How powerful must sin be if multitudes of people day in and day out, multitudes of people are choosing to hold on to their sin and go to hell forever rather than drop their sin and come to Christ and have eternal life. How powerful must the grips of sin be? And let me give you another thought. Sin is so powerful that the only remedy for it is the death of the Son of God. Have you thought about that? How vile must sin be that would cause Jesus, the Son of God, to weep in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, if there's any other way, take this away from me. The wrath of God is coming on this end. If there's any other way, take it away. How vile must sin be that puts a rift between God the Father and God the Son? How vile must it be? How destructive must it be that the only remedy is the bloody death of Jesus upon a cross? Sin is powerful and it's Destructive. Let me give you another thought. How powerful and destructive must sin be that even regenerated people, that means even believers like so many here, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, who are new creations in Christ, who have Jesus as their great high priest interceding on their behalf continually, and yet even us struggle with it. How powerful must it be? How strong must sin be? Genesis 4, 7, it describes sin as crouched down like a lion, ready to pounce and destroy you. Romans 7 describes sin as a, as a wicked slave driver, as an evil slave driver, and as a deceitful murderer. That's the way sin is described in Romans chapter 7. And if we really grasp the power and the destructiveness of sin, which I want us to grow in, I want us to see that if we are living lives where as we see more and more the glory of God and the holiness of God, we're going to be seeing more and more the destructive nature of sin. And as we do that, how do you think that's going to affect our personal fight against it in our lives? How do you think as we see the depth of depravity and the sinfulness, the putridness of sin, as we see that, how do you think it will affect our corporate battle against sin? How do you think it will affect us? I tell you this, it'll make us, it'll make us think of sin, at least in some ways like this, that when I, when I have this sin that's rising up, no sin is so small. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. And I see it as a man behind me trying to choke me out, trying to kill me. I have to put it to death. I have to get rid of sin. It'll make you fight. And when you look at your brothers and sisters that are being taken away and overtaken in sin, what will it make you do? It'll make you fight because you say, that is destroying my brother. It's killing my sister. It's murdering them and I've got to help them. I heard, I heard a, a brother that was dealing with some of uh, this kind of thought uh, just here in the last few days. He had a situation to where he needed to confront a brother. I love because he loved him. Confront a brother that was in sin. But he kept, he was telling me, but, but man, I just, I feel like I got my own problems, my own sin, my own weaknesses. He's, that's what he was saying. I got my own thing that I'm going through, you know, and I understand that. And I told him, and there's something to be said for take the plank out of your own eye that you might see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's true. But there's another sense in which, listen, I, I told him, I said, brother, it's not about you. You mean your brother's in sin and you're over here worried about your own, your own sickness? Brother, do something about it. Help him. He's being killed right now. 
And so it would make him move in that sort of way. I, I gave him an analogy of imagine, imagine me being sick. I'm real sick. You know, I, I'm feeling weak and coughing and sick. And my wife's over there and, and, and somebody and a man comes up behind her and begins to choke her out. And he's just choking her. And you imagine me saying, oh, but you, you know, I'm so sick. I'm so sick. I can't do anything about it. But love compels you to look away from yourself. He said, it's not about me. But the more we get the sinfulness of sin, I think these things will affect us. Also, the more we grasp the power and the destructiveness of sin, it's going to move us to see, to, to love Jesus and to love His gospel, right? Luke chapter 7, remember that lady? In Luke chapter 7, she, she, she's weeping at Jesus' feet. She loves Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, she's forgiven much. And that's the reason she loves so much. She knew the depth of her sin. She knew the reality of her sin like none of those Pharisees understood it. She knew it and it caused her to love Him much for His salvation. And that's the same thing we see in Colossians 1.21. Think about this. And you. Verse 21. Colossians 1.21. And you. And before He enters into the reconciliation, He puts before Him the pitch black sky, the night sky of your alienated haters of God doing evil deeds so that his next sentence, verse 22, is going to shine like the sun, that the gospel has come, that Christ has come to reconcile. So let's look at the reconciliation. The reconciliation of man. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is the reconciliation. So what is, what does this mean? What does reconciliation mean? What does reconciled mean? This word means to bring back to a, a, a former state of harmony. To bring back to, a, to change. To bring back to a former state of harmony. The word reconciliation assumes... That there's been some sort of divisive problem, right? If I came to this morning, I said, hey guys, me and Lib reconciled. A lot of you that don't know it, you, 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 you would say, I didn't know there's a problem. But you would assume there's a problem, right? Reconciliation assumes that there's some sort of divisive problem that is there. So what's the problem? The problem is that we are hostile to God, haters of God, and God counts us as His enemies. We're haters of God. There's hostilities. Toward, that we have towards God, and there's hostilities that God has towards us. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 is a good cross reference. Let me read this to you. Romans 5, 10, listen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His, His Son. If while we were enemies, so you got this word enemies put up next to reconciliation. To be reconciled assumes that there's enmity between two parties. And in this case, there's enmity between God and us. And this says, and He is reconciled. So think about that. The verse says, He has now reconciled. You mean there's a way for alienated haters of God who are evildoers, there's a way for us to be reconciled? You mean that can actually, that can actually happen? But, but what about my sin, right? What about my sin and my hostilities and my heart that comes before God? What about God's wrath? What about His judgment that He promised to pour out on all sin? What about those things? How could we be reconciled to God? And that's what the next phrase tells us. In His body of flesh by His death. We're talking about the death of Jesus. We're talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And it says in the body of His flesh. It's real. He really died. In the body of His flesh. He's trying to tell you all through the letter of Colossians. That Jesus is the fullness of God bodily. This means He had a real body. Jesus was really a man. Fully man. Fully God. And in the same way He was really a man. He really died. In the body of His flesh. He really died upon the cross. And at the cross our sin is dealt with. At the cross the wrath of God is dealt with. Think about this. The reason for our enmity, the reason that we need reconciliation is because our sin is before the sight of God. And what does a just and holy and good God do to sinners? He pours out wrath, just 
wrath on them. And that's he's to be worshipped for that. That is how he that's what he's like. So sin from us, wrath from God. And yet the cross enters in through the body of his flesh through death. Think about it. At the cross, our sin gets laid upon him. He's wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God made him sin who knew no sin. He took it. He took it off of us onto himself. He stood there and it was as if God the Father looked on him as if he was the sinner, though he was not. And he poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us so that we could be reconciled. How could, what about our sin? What about God's wrath? What about those two things? Jesus took them both out of the way at the cross so that we could come back to him. So that we're no longer alienated, no longer banished from God. I've been singing this song because there's little pieces of what we're talking about in this verse, this passage of scripture. There's little pieces of it all in this song. Okay. And praise God to my surprise. We sang it this morning. And so I just want to read these words to you. I want you to think about these words from this song. Now, why this fear and unbelief has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? And will the righteous judge of man condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? Anybody got an answer? No, <laughs> he won't. He won't count against us. Keep going. Complete atonement you have made and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owe. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by his saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Be still, my soul, and know this peace. No more alienation, no more enemies, but peace with God. Be still, my soul, and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. And so what's the result? What's the result? Continue on in verse 22. In order to, so here's the result. The death of Jesus to reconcile us to himself. Here's the result. In order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Wow. Can you imagine that? Hey, you know who you are. Alienated. And even what you know is a dim picture of your own sinfulness, right? You actually don't know how sinful you are. But there you are. Here we are. Alienated from God. Haters of God. Doing evil deeds. And through the death of Jesus Christ, we get present, presented before God one day as what? Holy before Him. Blameless. Above reproach in His sight. That ought to blow you away. <laughs> Think about these words together. The alienated ones are made holy. That means we were once separated from God. Now we're set apart to God. That is to be holy. Brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to God. The greatest gift of the gospel is you get God. Once hostile in mind, haters of God. Now blameless before Him. As if it never happened. As if you never hated him. Every hate, hate, hateful thought you had laid upon Jesus at the cross. None of them exist anymore. Cast as far as the east is from the west. This is regeneration. Our hostile heart is removed. And in regeneration, born again, we're given blameless hearts before him. The other word, once evil deeds, says evil deeds are on our record. And now above reproach before him. Can you imagine that? No accusation can stick against you because Christ Jesus paid it all. Not one accusation. If Satan stands to your side and says, I know what he did when he did this and this and this and this. The accuser of the brother can do that all day long. And we can take everyone that he mentions and say it's laid upon him at the cross. Done away with. We are above reproach in the sight of of God. You imagine the holy eyes of God. He sees everything. And now in his sight, you're blameless. That's justification. 
Well, not only does God regenerate you, but he also justifies you. The God, the judge of all the earth, leans forward on his bench and he says, righteous, and wipes the record clean. So now there is a way, right? There's a way to go from alienated from God to with God. And you come before him with a new heart, not a hostile heart. And you come before him with a record clean. Justified. Jude chapter 24. Reminds us that this ought to cause us to worship. Listen to Jude 24 and 25. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And listen. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. With, with great joy. To the only God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is what he's done. So those are beautiful truths. Absolutely beautiful truths. But then here comes a question. How do you know that you're a partaker of it? So we see where the, rec the reconciliation is rooted in the death of Jesus Christ. But how do you know that you... And I, how do we know that we have become partakers of it? And that takes us to verse 23, the conditions. So back in Colossians 1, verse 23, the conditions of reconciliation. The conditions of reconciliation. Let me read that part, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of of the gospel. Now that, that if hits you kind of abruptly, right? Anybody else feel that? Man, we're, you once were sinners. Now you're reconciled. If. Like, oh, where did that if come from, right? Before we discuss the details of what that if statement means and what it doesn't mean, I, I, sometimes I think as we explain that, we miss the force that's meant to come to us through that verse. Sometimes as we, as we explain what it means and what it doesn't mean, we miss the effect that, that, that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is intending to have on us when we read it. So don't, don't miss that. Think about the being in the Colossian church. And you're listening to this. You once were alienated haters of God, now reconciled by His death. If you continue in the faith, let that have the effect it's supposed to have. Grace for you, church. If you continue in the faith. It's just true. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If that happens, then you are the reconciled ones. So that should have some sort of an effect on us in the way that lands on us. Okay? But let's talk for a minute. So what, what does it not mean? Okay? This does not mean, this does not mean that you earn your way into heaven. This is not works righteousness. Okay? That I work my way and I just do the best that I can. And I just... I just give it my all, give it everything I've got, and God's going to accept me in the end because of my effort, because of my works, works righteousness. That's not what this is, it's not what this is preaching to us. Okay? Let me give you two reasons. One's an immediate context reason, and two's a broader context reason that this is not talking about works righteousness. So here's the immediate context reason. Notice that it does not say, okay? It doesn't say, you will be reconciled. In the future, if you continue in the faith. It doesn't say that. But what we know is the reconciliation in verse 22 is connected to being presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach. All those who are reconciled, it says you're reconciled in order that you might be presented holy. Okay, So those two are linked together. And it doesn't say you will be in the future reconciled if you continue. It says you once were like this. You once were haters of God, alienated. Yet now he has reconciled. And then it says, if you continue in the faith. So the difference there being this. It's not continue in the faith and you'll earn your way into the reconciliation. It's the continuing in the faith is the evidence that you truly are reconciled. Verse 23 is the evidence that you truly are the reconciled ones of verse 22. Because you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. An example of that might be something like this. I know that he's alive if he's breathing. Okay, the breathing 
He didn't breathe his way to life. But I know that he's alive if he's breathing. The breathing is the evidence that he is alive. And it's the same thing here in verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 23 is the evidence of verse 22. Let me give you another place where this is said. Hebrews chapter 3. Oh, I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 14. Listen to this. Same idea. As it is said. Verse 14, I'm sorry. 314. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we're talking about faith, we're talking about confidence. If you hold that confidence firm to the end, you're talking about persevering to the end. And he says, we have come to share in Christ. Now notice, he does not say, you will come to share in Christ in the future if you hold your confidence steadfast to the end. He doesn't say that. He says, you have, past tense, become a partaker of Christ. You have come to share in Christ, past tense. How do you know you have in the past if you continue to the end? Because God holds all of those. He perseveres all of those who truly, truly have faith. Another example where this is said, just because I want you to see this is not just a few times this is mentioned. Just don't flip there. Just listen. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now it's verse 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So I preached it to you in the past. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you. So this is not for me. This is throughout the Bible we have this kind of language. And what I'm telling you. So, so it does not mean. I'm telling you right now what it doesn't mean. And it does not mean you earn your way in. And that's clear from the immediate context. But also, and I'll say this quickly. It's clear from the broader context of the whole Bible, right? The whole scripture unfolds from Genesis to Revelation and it condemns works righteousness. You go ahead. You try to earn your way into heaven. You come before God with your chest bowed out because you were so spiritual and so good and you'll go to hell forever in your sin. And the Bible says that over and over and over again. Isaiah 64, 6 says that we are all like unclean things and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Filthy, all of our righteous deeds. Because we're so unclean, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Our works can't save us. Titus 3 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And that was shown to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean then? Here, here's what it means then. I want you to think about this. The person who has faith in Christ and Hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are words that are used in verse 23. In the faith. Not moved from the hope of the gospel. So the person who has faith in Christ. And hope in the gospel of Christ. That person is saved. They are saved. Okay. John 3.16. God so loved the world. He sent his only son. Whoever believes in him. Would not perish. But have eternal life. That is true. That's true. And that person. That person who believes on Him, guess what's going to happen the rest of their life? God is going to lift them up and hold them and cause them to persevere till the very end. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. Your great high priest intercedes on your behalf continually. Therefore, you can be saved, it says, to the uttermost, to the very end, completely. God's going to finish that work. And so here's another way you can say it. Then. You can say the person who has faith in Christ and hope in the gospel is saved. But because of God persevering, you can also say it like this. The person who is saved is the one who perseveres to the end, continuing in faith and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's what this verse means. Verse 23 is evidence that you are truly reconciled. So are you? Are you? Go across the room, examine yourself. Are you reconciled to God? Is it true that a life change has happened within you? That something has happened on the inside? Something has happened where God has come and done a work. And He's completing that work and you see it. I'm not talking perfection, but God is at work in your life. Moving you forward in sanctification. Do you see that? Have you been reconciled? And that leads us to my last question on this little, on this verse. How can I be confident 
that I will continue in the faith. How can I be confident that I will continue in the faith and prove to be a true Christian? How can I be confident? And I want to give you two answers to that. How can I be confident that I will... He's saying, if you continue in the faith, if you continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, he's saying, if that's, if that's you, how can I be confident that I will meet that if statement? And I'll give you two thoughts. One is you need to fight and beware. That's just one. Fight and beware. And two is you need to trust God. You need to trust Him. So here's what I mean. Number one, fight and beware. That's how verse 23 is supposed to land on us. We're supposed to read verse 23. If you continue in the faith, and, and there's a positive, stable and steadfast, which is like building language, okay? Building on the faith. And you got a negative comment, not, here's what I mean, not moving away, not being dislodged from the hope of the gospel. Okay? And, and th- those, those statements are meant to, to call me to, to fight and to beware, to fight, to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. To continue on in faith in Jesus Christ, like being built on the bedrock that is Christ. Continue on. And at the same time, beware. Don't let those false teachers come in and move you away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let them dislodge you, Colossian church. Don't let them move you away, Grace Community Church. And as you go after that, and you move into fighting for that faith, that confidence, and you move into being warned about being dislodged from it, that will create in you more and more assurance. More and more assurance or confidence that you are truly in the faith. But here's the other side of that. It's to trust God, right? I want to give you this. This is one of those verses I read this week. You ever read one you just felt like it was hiding in there for the last you know, 12 years you've been reading the Bible? You're like, whoa, where'd that come from? This was awesome, man. Good to my soul. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. I want to encourage everybody here who's in Christ Jesus to trust in this. She would trust in this. Listen. As you fight to continue in the faith, as you are warned not to move away from the hope of the gospel, trust in this. Verse 7, right in the middle of verse 7, right at the end of verse 7. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. You think of Him that way? The one who's your Savior. That He will sustain you to the end. How can you have confidence that you'll be this one that continues in the faith? How can you be confident? Because your Savior is the one that promises to sustain you to the end. Trust Him. Trust Him. Alright, last heading here. Which gospel reconciles? So... As we continue on in verse 23, it says, verse 23, right in the middle, it says the gospel. And it gives you three descriptions of the gospel. Or three, you know, distinctions. Like Paul's saying, I'm talking about this gospel. You might have heard a bunch of false gospels, Colossian church, but this is the gospel I'm referring to. The gospel that, number one, that you heard. Epaphras preached it to him that you heard. Number two. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And number three, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, two of these are easy easy to understand, right? The first one, I'm talking about the gospel that you heard. That you heard, that's easy to understand. Paphras preached it to them, we know that from this letter. It's that first gospel that they heard, right? It's the one they heard and God saved their soul. And then the third one is... Of which, that gospel of which I, Paul, have become a minister. That one's easy to understand. The Apostle Paul is a minister of this gospel. This is the one that he affirms. But that second one's a little harder to understand, right? I'm talking about that gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. What's that mean? Everybody get the difficulty of that verse? It has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So I want to try to understand that second one real quick. Just quick. You know, understanding of why he says that second description like that. So here, here's what it surely does not mean. It does not mean that Paul was ignorant to the fact that that gospel had not yet gone to every people, group, and nation on the planet. It's not that, right? We know Romans 15. Paul's saying, look, I'm coming to you, Roman church. I want, I want to go where Christ is not yet named. He knew that. I want you to send me to Spain where Christ is not yet named. So he's not ignorant of the fact that the gospel had not actually gone into every people group 
on the planet. So then how do you understand it? I think the way to understand it is pretty simple. Compare it to Romans 8.30. Okay, compare it to Romans 8.30. Think about Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's this string of, of salvation that God does. This is what He does it, man. Everybody He predestines, He calls. All that He calls, He justifies. All that He justifies, He glorifies. Nobody jumps out of that, that little progression. Okay? God does that. Now, out of those three, which, I mean, out of those four, which three have already happened? Predestined, called, justified. And the last one says, He is also glorified. But if our glorification has not yet happened, why does He speak about it like it's past tense? You have been glorified. Why does he speak about it like that? Because some things are so sure. They're so absolute. God has done it that he speaks about it in past tense. It is done. It's over with. It's done. And so in the same way, bring that back into this, this, this passage of scripture. The gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It is done in the sense that the king has already put forward the, the commission to all nations go. And he's already given the promise that this gospel will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. It is done in that sense. It's absolutely done. An illustration that I like to think about is uh, Daniel chapter 4. You imagine Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar. Man, he now knows that the God of Daniel is the God of glory. And so he writes a letter. And that letter is written to every people, nation, tribe, and tongue on the planet. That's who it's addressed to. And in that letter it says that the God of Daniel is the God of glory in Daniel 4. Now you imagine the messengers of King Nebuchadnezzar beginning to spread out and scurry around over all the planet, all, over all the earth. And me and you are still standing in the throne room of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I look at you and I say, man, did you hear that news? It has gone out to all creation under heaven. It's gone out to all creation under heaven. Now, I would realize that it has not necessarily made it to every nook and cranny just yet. But that's the one. That is the all nations gospel. That's the one that is going, going all over the planet. So work that God has done. Listen to this. I read this from one of the commentaries on this verse. This is his take on that Phrase the gospel that's going to all the earth. Like a sovereign making a proclamation and sending off his heralds to bear it to the distant corners of his empire, God has in Christ Jesus proclaimed once and for all that the world which he made has been reconciled to him. His heralds scurrying off to the ends of the earth with the news and are simply agents messengers of this one antecedent authoritative proclamation. That's his understanding of that verse. So hopefully that under, that explains that second one. It's a little harder to, to explain or to understand. But I just want you to think about this. Why does he say this? Why give this threefold distinction of which gospel he's talking about? Why do that? Why would he do that in this passage of scripture? I think it's important because it's actually the second time he's done it in, the, in chapter one of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, he did the exact same thing. He said, the gospel that you heard, that's going out into all the world, in which Epaphras, who is a servant of God, it's the exact same progression. Except this time he says, the one that you heard, the one that's going to all creation, been proclaimed in all creation, and the one which I, Paul, became a minister. Why is it important that he makes these distinctions? And so let me just mention them very quickly, one by one. He's telling them it's the gospel that you heard. Number one, the gospel you heard. That means the one you heard from Epaphras. It's, it's that gospel. The gospel that you heard in the beginning is the one to hold on to. Don't let these false teachers move you away as if you needed something else. As if that gospel wasn't powerful enough. This is the gospel I'm talking about. The one that you heard from the very beginning. Hold to it. Dig deeper into it. But don't move away from it. The gospel is not the entrance exam into the university. It's not. It's the building in which all the classes take place. The gospel. Number two. The gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation. What he's saying to them there? It's Colossian church. This is bigger than you. This is the all nations gospel. You don't get to decide what it can be. Those false teachers can't decide what it should be or what it should not be. This is the all nations gospel that everyone on the planet who would ever be saved is saved by this one gospel. That's the one I'm telling you to hold on to and to not move away from. 
Don't let these false teachers move you. And number three, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's saying, listen, don't believe these false teachers that want to move you away. I put apostolic, Paul was an apostle, apostolic authority that that gospel that Epaphras preached to you, that's going out to all creation, that's the one that I affirm that you should hold to. So do you see the reason for these distinctions here? Hold to the gospel. We'll talk more about that, holding to that gospel next week. Let me say a few quick things in application, okay? But right here at the end, just a few quick things in application. First, let me speak to anybody here who is lost, okay? If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're not born again. Maybe you say you're not born again. Maybe you thought you were when you came in. Now you think maybe you're not. You might say something like this. Listen to my voice, please. You might say something like this. Well, you know, until looking at these verses, I didn't realize how bad my sin condition was. Listen to me. You don't know the half of it. You still don't get how terrible it is. How, how wretched it is. You don't get it. But even what you do, if that's the truth, and you're saying, man, I didn't realize how bad my condition was before God. I plead with you. Flee for safety to Jesus Christ. Flee for safety to Christ. Run to Him. Think about what He has done. Think about the loving arms of Christ reached out in mercy and there's a time coming where they're going to be retracted forever and it will be too late. But right now, the hands of God's mercy are reached out to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ and He's laid down His life for your sins. He has bore your wrath in your place. You can run to Him and be safe. You can run to Him and be saved. And so anybody here as well as I plead with you, run, flee from the wrath to come and run to Christ. What would keep you from Him? You, if you let something keep you from Him, you will be in hell one day. And we know this from Luke 16. You will be in hell one day and you're not going to be ignorant. You're not going to be stupid. You're going to know those petty little things that I let keep me from Jesus. They're worthless now. They mean nothing now. Those petty little things that I let keep me from Christ. So I'm pleading with you. Don't let anything keep you from Jesus. Come to Him. He says, come all you weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. If you're still sitting here and you don't feel your need for Him, if you're lost here and you don't feel your need for Him at all, there's no hope for you. And, I, and I'm going to pray that God would open your eyes. Uh, to the church, just a little application to the church. Let, let me just, for real quick, let me go back to that first point I made about this. Us knowing the sinfulness of sin. Okay, Let me go back to that for just a second. Think about that. Us growing as a church in the sinfulness of sin, the destructiveness of sin, the vileness of sin, all that we might grow in our knowledge of it. And not just in our knowledge of it, but in the felt reality of it. I want us as a church to grow in that. I believe, just like J.C. Ryle said, I believe the soft views of sin are the root of many, many, many of the errors of our day. Soft views of sin. You know that your culture has soft views of sin. They do not take sin. Uh, they don't go overboard. They take it way too lightly, right? You think we might be influenced by that. So, I believe it's the root. Soft views of sin are the root of many, many errors of our day. In fact, you know, one little point I didn't make earlier. Romans chapter 7 says, God gives the law. That's like a whole section of your Bible. And why did He give the law? That you might know the sinfulness of your sin. The exceeding sinfulness of your sin beyond measure. Apparently God wants us to grow in our sin. Not just that it's sin, but the exceeding sinfulness of it. You know, Dustin mentioned a while back when he was preaching through Matthew 18. And this is just for our church. Matthew 18, he was preaching through that. And he had mentioned that he, and, and I agree, we agree with this. I think many I think many of you agree too. That we want to grow as a church and and. In this area of, of being able to rebuke and correct and deal with sin in each other's lives. To deal with sin among us. And so what I would add to that is at the root of weaknesses in doing that. At the very root is low or soft views of sin. Not seeing sin as something that's going to kill my brother and sister. It's choking them out. And so therefore I say let's go after. Let's ask God to help us to grow. And seeing the sinfulness of sin. So study. I encourage you to study God's word in that. I encourage you to pray.
for that. Make that a focus in your prayer that God would help you to see this, that God would help you to dig. As you see more and more the glory and holiness of God, that you remember uh, uh, Peter? When he saw the glory of Jesus in that boat, what did he do? He hit his knees and he said, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. See, those things, go, they go hand in hand. You see the holiness of God and you just see the terrible sinfulness of sin. So let's ask God in prayer to help us do that. Uh, I would encourage you to consider slowly digging in to uh, J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. The first chapter is about sin. I think it's the first chapter. It's called Sin. It'll be easy to find. Um, but that chapter, digging into it slowly might be a helpful thing for growing in this area. If, if we grow in seeing the sinfulness of sin, the glories of the gospel are going to shine so bright before us. Do you realize that? The more we see the sinfulness of sin, we're going to be more and more like that lady weeping at his feet who Jesus said, love much. Okay? And the more that we grow in the sinfulness, seeing the sinfulness of our sin, we'll grow in our aggression and the way we fight against sin in our own lives. I just read this week about, about David in that cave. And King Saul steps in and all of David's men say, this is your chance to kill him. You get to kill King Saul right now. Kill him, David. Kill him. And he says, no, I'm not going to kill him. Instead, he goes up and he says he cuts a little piece out of his robe. So he cuts a piece out of Saul's robe. And next thing you know, it says David's heart struck him. Oh, just that, just that little sin that seems like nothing to us. And his heart strikes him down. I can't believe I did that. I'm talking about aggression, even over the small things, even over the little things that we would fight. And the last thing I'll say is that as we grow in our our knowledge and our felt reality of the sinfulness of sin, we'll grow in that thing we're talking about, that corporate fight against sin. Where we are in each other's lives. You know, again, I read recently Matthew 5. And when you bring your gift to the altar, you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember, and it doesn't say you remember that you got something against somebody else. It doesn't say that. It says, there you remember that your brother has something against you. Put the gift down. Go deal with it. Be reconciled to your brother first and come back and offer the gift. And the picture there to me of just this love that you view the brothers and sisters around you corporately, corporately fighting so that you view your brothers and sisters as not just, you know, this, this thing and that thing, but sin wants to kill them. And you can help them. You can love them. You can care for them. You can be that in their lives. So I want to encourage us in the church to go after growing in our knowledge, felt reality of the sinfulness of sin. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Help us, Lord. God, I pray for the lost soul that's here. God, save his soul. Save her soul. Bring them to you, Lord. God, I pray that you wouldn't allow them to be blind, but you said in your word that just like light, you commanded light shine out of the darkness, that you would shine in their hearts, that they might see the glory of Christ. God, I pray that they would see their own sin, but then immediately see the reconciliation found in you, Lord Jesus, where you laid down your life for them. God, open their eyes. Save, save a lost person among us, Lord. And God, I pray for this church, Lord, that you would help us to see the glories of these verses, God, and, and in particular, Lord, the sinfulness of sin. God, help us to view, to view sin as you view it. And God, I pray that you would get glory in our lives through that. In Jesus' name, amen.